At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 437th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is stewarding our food futures with regional seed growers working together. We're talking with Casey O'Leary about seed cooperatives. Casey is a seed freak and urban farmer in Boise, Idaho. On her farm, which is called Earthly Delights, she grows oodles of seed crops as well as vegetables, herbs, and flowers for her CSA members. She also co-founded the Snake River Seed Cooperative, which now involves over 30 Intermountain West farmers stewarding nearly 400 varieties of regionally adapted seeds, which they sell to area farmers and gardeners. Casey loves to talk with others about the wondrous interconnections of the natural world. Welcome to the show today, Casey. Are you ready to rock seeds? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure, yeah. Um, so this would be my 15th year farming. I've been farming in Boise uh, all that time. And I didn't grow up farming. I just I got into it actually through environmental activism. And, you know, part of that process of environmental activism is someone else is doing these really horrible things and then you're spending your time and energy trying to shut them down. At some point, you know, especially in Idaho, we have a pretty, uh, I have a very different set of political beliefs than the vast majority of the uh, leadership in Idaho. And so I just always felt like I was kind of beating my head against a brick wall. And at some point I just had this thought, like, I want to turn and run as fast as I can go in the direction that I think that we should head and then let someone else waste their energy trying to shut me down, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And I, I think I had gotten into food, you know, as this very powerful, visceral, everyday thing that we do and that the enormous environmental impacts that it can have, that the choices we make with food can have. And so, yeah, so I started a farm uh, with another person on just a vacant lot uh, near my house. We asked the landowner for permission to use it. And then from there, kind of spread out into a few different plots, we used bikes to move ourselves and our farm implements and produce and stuff all over the, the city for quite a few years there. For the first few years, we didn't use any equipment. We were really proud of that. We didn't use fossil fuels, or we tried not to. We used uh, shovels and and uh, double dug a lot of stuff. And but you know the nature of urban farming, you lose plots of land also. And I've never owned farm plot of land, so I've had to move a lot um, mm. in the 15 years that I farmed. I've been the last five years. I've been at the same property, which has been really great. But prior to that, I think I had farmed at nine different pieces wow. of land. 
usually most of them concurrently, uh, you know, I'll do like three, two or three plots every year. And so, you know, there's a lot of heartache and loss and with losing those plots. And there's just a lot of, I mean, as your listeners know, being urban people or urban farmers, there's just so much challenge to that specific thing. Through all that, I had, I got into saving seeds pretty quickly through visiting another farm in Canada called ALM Farm, Mary Alice Johnson, her farm in in Sook, BC. I went there as a woofer for just a few days with a friend. And it was really inspiring to see that she was doing essentially what I was doing, you know, vegetable farming. But she also had all these, she was producing seed too. And it was so interesting just to see her. It was magical. The flowers, like, you know, all these vegetables that we tend to think of as just you know, like a radish, for example, you know, you pull it out and that's it. And you eat right. it, you know, you grow it, you pull it out and eat it. But if you leave it in the ground, it does all these crazy things in route to becoming, to making its seeds. And I really just fell in love with that. And so, so I, you know, I started pretty small with, with saving seeds just off of a few things. And then over time, fell more and more and more in love with that. And now it's a huge portion of my business. Now I do, it's, it's well over 50% of my income on my farm comes from is is growing and selling seeds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And well, and it's really so easy to grow seeds. I know every year here at the urban farm, I always let a few of everything go to seed. There's a lot of value. Urban farmers are uniquely positioned to to do some some things with seed saving. There are definitely a lot of challenges. Also, <laughs> you know, we're growing. You know, for a CSA, we do a CSA, and you know, so like for example, cucumbers. You know, like. I would feel really weird giving my CSA members only one kind of cucumber, mm-hmm. you know, all season long. And so because cucumbers cross-pollinate, it's really hard for me to do a seed crop of cucumber seeds because, I, you know, I want to be growing many different kinds of cucumbers for my CSA. And those plants will easily cross-pollinate in the field because of bees. Right, and then my seed crop, you know, then my seed crop. I can't say, oh, these are market more cucumber seeds. They might be, you know, they might have a market more mom, but they might have like a lemon cucumber dad or something like that. And so, you know, the gardeners who buy my seeds and plant them wouldn't necessarily be getting what I was selling them. They were getting, which isn't good. So there's some challenges like that that I see to urban seed saving, but there's a lot of opportunity there too. Like the biggest example I usually use is corn. You know, we are, you know, a a lot of people are nervous about GMOs and corn is one of the most common things that people are nervous about in terms of genetic modification. Right. We're in a very good space as urban farmers to steward non-GMO corn because, you know, corn's wind pollinated. So if you're in you know, the rural Midwest, you know, where the wind is blowing and there's, you know, tons and tons of open acreage where you've got lots and lots and lots of corn, GM corn uh, all over the place. It's really hard to not have your own seed crop get contaminated. But if you're in a city, you know, we have all of these walls and fences and buildings and trees and all this stuff that makes it a lot harder for windborne pollen to blow all over the place, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and plus, you know, usually when we're in cities, we're not really near conventionally grown or genetically modified corn. Exactly. Um, And so, you know, we're in a really unique position to, to help steward these, these corn varieties too, that are, you know, at risk of genetic cross cross contamination from GE crops and, so there's, you know, there's some great things about being an urban seed saver. And then there's, of course, some challenges, depending on what your neighbors are growing and, right. you know, all that stuff. 
you know, the cross pollination can be a real, a real issue. So you mentioned a couple of terms that I, I just want to have you define real quickly for us, uh, for our listeners that are new and, and aren't familiar with them. You said woofer. Can you tell me what a woofer is? I know. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Willing workers on, or which like what is it? Willing workers on organic farms, something, something like, like that. that. It's yeah, like a program where you know you can go and volunteer on a farm, and often in exchange for room and board. And I haven't done a ton of it, unfortunately. It's one of the things that I do have some regrets about. I just started my farm out the gate, but mm-hmm. learning how to do it very well and. But that was one of the few opportunities I did have pretty early in my farming career to just go. I was just visiting a friend for a few days, and she wanted to do that as a as an activity. And so we, we did that. Um, did but there's people who wolf all over the world doing, you know, for months at a time learning. I have a friend who just finished a stint working on a blueberry farm in New Zealand. I oh, think. nice. So if you're, yeah. interested, if you're interested in learning more about woofing, just Google WWOOF. And there's all kinds of stuff all over the world that'll show up. So the other term that I want you to define for our listeners is CSA. Oh, yeah. Community-supported agriculture, is uh, it's a model where people pay up front for a share of the harvest, and then you harvest whatever you have in your far, on your farm for that week, and you dole it out among the members. I love that model. It's I've tried all of the things in marketing my my produce. Um, I've done. I've sold at farmers market, and I've sold to restaurants, and I've sold to you know grocery stores and things like that. And for me, CSA is the best model. It's the only thing I do anymore to market my vegetables because for a lot of reasons. I mean, I always I, I do a lot of mentoring of young farmers and mm-hmm. new farmers, and and I always encourage them to sort of look at how their personality. <laughs> what kind of personality they have and how that will interface with <laughs> with their marketing channels. Yes. So for me, for one, I'm a saver. That's my personality type is I save. I don't like to waste things. So it's really stressful for me to take produce to farmer's market where, you know, I harvest it and then I don't know if someone's going to buy it or not. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I don't know what to do with it once yeah. I have it all left over. And, and so I really don't like that. It really makes me very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> so I really love CSA because I know exactly what I'm harvesting. You know, if I have 45 people coming to pick up an eggplant, I know I need to pick 45, 45 eggplants yeah, exactly. and I won't pick and I won't pick any more than that, you know, and I just, that makes me feel a lot better knowing I'm not going to waste a lot. Plus the other thing that's the value of CSA is that it teaches people how to eat in various seasons of the year. So, oh, yes. you know, part of what we, part of our channel, I didn't grow up eating any of this food either. I mean, I thought it was absolutely disgusting. I joined a CSA first as a, before I started my own farm, I joined one because I was trying to, you know, save the world or whatever. And uh, yeah, and it was like horrible. I hated it. I got a bunch of greens. I didn't know what to do with. I thought they were disgusting. I didn't know how to cook them. It was really stressful. And so I have a real soft spot in my heart for that. You know, all these folks who joined my TSA, you know, a lot of them have been terrified like I was at learning how to eat all this food and eat all these vegetables and incorporate all these vegetables into their lives every week and their diet and everything. It's hard. And, you know, they help each other. Now we kind of have this food culture built around us that, you know, after I've been doing it for so long, I have members who have been with me for, you know, 10 years or more. And and those people, they look forward to every new vegetable and they know exactly what they want to do with every Mm -hmm. new thing that comes in. I just think that that's such a valuable thing to do because if you, you know, if you want to go to the farmer's market, you want to support local food, you know, you go to the farmer's market, you might just buy exactly what you already know how to eat, meaning 
that you never are going to learn how to eat new things if you're not forced into it. Right. <laughs> and so with the CSA, we choose what they get every week. We know, we know what can be grown. We plan our crops out to maximize the diversity on the farm. And every week we harvest whatever we have and, and we give them a huge diversity of food. And I like that. I like forcing us all to think try outside new of the things box and learn how to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's the kind of thing we need. Biodiversity is super important for the, you know, for our future in terms of our health, in terms of the environmental health, the health of our farms, pollinators, worms, you name it. Everybody it benefits if we have more biodiversity in our agriculture. And as urban farmers, we're just so well poised to do that. Yes. And, and the big part of a CSA also is the educational piece. It sounds like you're doing that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do a newsletter every week and we give people recipes and ideas about how to use the food and how to store it if they're not ready to use it right now or, Mm -hmm. you know, try to incorporate, you know, and and the other thing is, I mean, I just like, I guess I'm a socialist and I believe that producers in society need to be the ones to set prices and kind of explain how things are going to go. We're the ones on the ground doing the work and a CSA model allows me to do that. It allows me to say, this is what it costs. This is what I need to live on. This is what it costs for this food. You Mm -hmm. know, the grocery store prices are artificially cheap and they're built on the backs of cheap, exploited labor. And as CSA farmers, we're able to say, look, this is the deal. This is what it actually costs to get the food to you. So this is what you need to pay. And no, you don't get to pick what you get. And you pick it up at the time that I say you're going to, that you need to come and pick it up. And that's it. Like, that's how it rolls. The producer calls the shots. And I think that's really a really valuable model. We, we strive in our, all the projects I've been involved in have been designed for that producer-driven model. That's how we run the seed co-op as well, mm-hmm. is, is with this idea that the producers set the prices for the seed. The person doing the work is the best poised to de- determine what it needs to cost. Well, that that gives us, as farmers, because I do a certain amount of seed production as well, it gives us, uh, it empowers us. I, I see that as empowering. Yeah. I mean, so much of our modern society seeks to demoralize producers and keep us down. And, you know, somehow we think that the manager is superior to the person doing the work, you know, or the person trading on Wall Street with money that isn't even doing anything productive mm-hmm. somehow deserves to be rich, whereas the people that are on the ground every day doing the work that keeps us fed and healthy are, you know, they don't, they don't deserve dignity or respect or a living wage or whatever. And this just flips, the CSA model has the potential to just flip that right onto its, right on top of its head and Got say it. no. Gotta love the producers decide. Yeah, gotta love that. And so you mentioned the seed cooperative. Let's talk about that. What is a, your seed cooperative? Uh, what's the model look like? Yeah. So initially, it was just me selling my own seeds to like I I'd grow all my seeds. I put them in packets. I hand sewed my packets for a few years. <laughs> just wow. a complete mess. But <laughs> over the years, as I got a little bit bigger, and you know, I would I would just take my own seeds from my farm, put them in packets. And then put them on shelves in local garden centers and retail nurseries and stuff and food co-ops and things. And, and then over time, I started to realize that, for one, people were really starting to rely on my seeds. They, they looked forward to using them and wanted to use them over buying seeds from the store or whatever, you know, from a faraway seed company. Right. And that was a lot of pressure to be like, oh, my gosh, well, if I have a crop failure on something and all these people are relying on it, I just it made me feel really nervous. Mm-hmm. And 
the other thing is I just have this desire to cooperate with other farmers. I, so much of the local farming culture, just like anything, can be really competitive. You know, it's like who gets the contract for to sell the peppers to the co-op or, right. you know, who gets the contract or, you know, who's at farmer's market has the first tomatoes and who's going to make the most money or sell their stuff at farmer's market or whatever. And at, the, at this time of the year, so we're, this is March, we're recording this, and, you know, this is the time when all the CSA members are like, or the CSA farmers are looking at each other going, mm, how many members do you have right now? Like, <laughs> you know, there's this weird competitive edge and I just, have this real desire to work together with my fellow farmers. And so I thought, well, the seeds are a great way to do that because yeah. there's no end to the diversity that we can that we can produce if we all work together. So like I can only grow one melon a year on my farm because of the cross-pollination, the bees will move, you know, I can only grow one kind. Mm-hmm. So I only have one kind to offer if I'm the only person selling seeds to my community. We only have one melon. But if I work with five other farmers and each of them can grow one melon, then we have five varieties of melon we can offer to our community, which is really exciting. And so I just, I wanted to build something that, that allowed anybody who wanted to participate to be able to participate. And it's great. I mean, from a niche standpoint on a farm, you know, we have markets for our seeds that no other farmers are looking at. Like no other farmers are trying to go into garden centers and nurseries and, and sell anything. Right. But mm-hmm. we, but that's our market. Our seeds can go there. So I don't, I'm not at the same table with all these other folks that are competing for who gets the contract at the, you know, at the food co-op to sell the peppers or the zucchini or whatever. You know, instead we have seeds that we sell there and nobody else is doing that. So it's been really valuable in that way for us too. And the more people we have, the stronger we get, the more infrastructure we can have, the more kind of centralizing all the work of that additional job that is that is like taking the seeds and packaging them and, and getting them out, distributing them. That's a whole job in and of itself. And it's a real detail oriented one. That's not exactly the best fit for most farmers. You know, it's a lot of indoor, indoor office work, you know, not what most of us want to be doing. So we're really lucky to have this crew of folks that's, you know, we've got Riley who's like amazing with spreadsheets, (laughs) you know, and she can do (laughs) all this kind of office-y stuff for us all. And it allows us to just do the work of growing the seeds. And then the kind of office people can work, they can take care of the whole marketing, distribution, social media, all right. that stuff. And yeah. it's great. So you have individual farmers growing seeds and say I'm the, at the urban farm, I raise five pounds of cowpeas here and I contribute it to the, to the co-op. Um, then you have a crew of people that package them and, you know, do all the all the packaging and marketing and everything like that? Yeah, exactly. But for you at the Urban Farm, we personally wouldn't buy seeds from you only because you're not in our bioregion. Ah. So we have a so we have a very clearly defined bioregion that we work with and mm-hmm. we only buy seeds from farmers that are in that area. And the reason why we do that is because we believe in seed sovereignty. And so we think that someone in your area ought to be doing that for your area. Seeds are so specific to place, you know, they work so much better. They can adapt so well to the places that they're in. And that's one of the things we've lost in this, you know, increasingly consolidated global seed shed. Mm -hmm. We have seeds being trucked all over the world that haven't necessarily grown up in the place where they're being grown and they don't necessarily perform the best in that place. And so so we're doing this work for our bioregion, but we believe that, that other bioregions should be doing that work for themselves as well. 
But yes, I mean, assuming you were in our Intermountain West buyer region, we would buy your seeds from you. You would tell us the price that you thought you needed for them. We, we At this point, we have a little bit of a list of prices that we work with that we could say, hey, this is what other growers who grow cowpeas oh, have that's said nice. uh-huh. that they need. And so how does that feel to you? And then, you know, you do the work the year, you, you grow them all out and you decide, yeah, that feels, that price feels fair for the amount of work that I did. And and then we, so we pay you for your seeds and then we take your seeds and we, yeah, we put them into packets. We put them on our web store. We sell them at the retail nurseries that we work with around the Intermountain West. And, and then, yeah, you just, you just get a big fat check in the middle of the winter when you don't have any other income from your produce usually. Nice. So it's a really nice, yeah. So it's a nice, it's a nice thing for farmers. Like our farmers are getting paid like right now. They have been since. January, we basically between like January and March, we try to get everybody paid for the crops from the previous year. And most people aren't, don't have a lot of other farm income coming in at this, in this winter months. And so it's a really nice time of year to get paid. And that's, yeah. you know, this is a nice thing about the seed season too, is it dovetails so nicely with the, with the produce season, you know, in the, in the summer we can be doing fresh produce, but in the winter we have seeds that we can be selling. Beautiful. And so your bio region is where? So we consider our bioregion to be, we call it the Intermountain West. We are based in Boise, Idaho, and we, we consider basically Idaho, we, we, even though there's a lot of different bioregions within the state of Idaho, we use the borders of the state of Idaho in, in their entirety. We say all of Idaho is in our bioregion. And then we also include parts of the states that surround Idaho. So um, like northern Utah is really similar to southern Idaho. Eastern Oregon is really similar to southern Idaho. So we do work a little bit across state lines. Obviously, bioregions aren't necessarily following state borders. Right. But yeah, so we consider it to be all of Idaho, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, northern Nevada, northern Utah, western Montana, western Wyoming. That's oh, our bioregion. Perfect. Perfect. And you also mentioned seed sovereignty. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I think the idea is that communities should be able to have control over their food sources. And of course, the seeds are the building blocks of food. So if we don't have local seeds, we don't have local food systems. And all of this work that's been done on building local food sheds around the country, um, and so many urban farmers are part of that, it's all for naught if you go to the farmer's market and everything that's being grown and sold at the farmer's market is grown from a seed that was trucked in from somewhere else, you know? Yeah. So we need to relocalize our seeds as well. And seed sovereignty for us means that the people who are in a community, the individual amateurs, <laughs> should should have access to seeds. We don't believe in patenting seeds. We don't believe in genetically modifying them and having any sort of proprietary ownership over them. All the seeds we grow are open pollinated. They're not hybrid, so you can save seed off of them successfully and have them have that seed come true to type. We work with a lot of regional heirlooms and things like that that have been a part of our region's culture and story and history for a while. They do well here. And then, but part of that, by us doing that for our bioregion, we feel like that gives people in other places all over the world the same right. You know, part of, you know, I've learned a lot of of, from people like Vonda Nashiva who talk about, you know, what's happening in India with, the Green Revolution and this pushing of these, you know, Western corporate-owned hybrid and or genetically modified seeds that are being forced onto farmers in that region that aren't, that don't work as well as their own seeds and they cost money, whereas the other ones didn't. And, you know, we believe that, like, 
people in India, farmers in India have every bit as much of a right to their own seed sovereignty as we have here. And by us learning to take care of ourselves, we kind of bring that home and we try to support the work that people are doing all over the world to like bring that home for themselves too, because we see the common threat as these massive multinational chemical companies that now control over 75% of the world's seed. <sighs> and we take a deep breath there. Yeah. That, that is a big, <laughs> uh, that is a big challenge. And I, and I'm glad that you're up to it and, you know, working forward with it. Um, so I do have one more question for you about snake river, uh, and then I want to talk about your seed school coming up in July. And so you only work with farmers in your bioregional area. But if I in Arizona wanted to get seeds from you, I can go to your website and get some. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we tend to focus our. Well, so we sell. Yes, we have a website. It is worldwide. <laughs> the World Wide Web. <laughs> Anybody can buy seeds from us. We we sell seeds to people in other countries. We sell people seeds to people in the other parts of the United States. We do set up wholesale seed racks. So, you know, if you walk into your local nursery or uh, whatever, yes. you could buy seeds from whatever, you know, whatever companies they're willing to put on the shelves. And so we try to focus our energy on those types of things in our bioregion. So when we, when we reach out to people and ask, say someone in Spokane, Washington, if they want to put our, a seed rack of our seeds up in their nursery, that's the kind of thing we're looking at is doing that for our bioregion. But if right. people want to buy seeds from us, absolutely. I mean, we love to, What's we the love website? to send seeds all over. Uh, snakeriverseeds.com. Perfect. And and then what we would encourage you, uh, all, all our team here at the Urban Farm would encourage you to uh, buy those seeds and then grow them out yourself and start saving your own seeds. Yeah, exactly. And that's the beauty of this. Like, we're part of a, there's a big movement. There's, you know, the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance has a really great, on their on their website, I think it's RockyMountainSeeds.org, they yep. have a really great map of of a bunch of small-scale bioregional seed companies. So if you're in another part of the country, I mean, by all means, you can buy our seeds if you want to. And you might also check out that map and find out if there's a bioregional seed company near you and that you could get seeds from even closer to home than we are to you. Yeah, beautiful. And so you have a, a seed school coming up in July. Tell me about it. Um, I've worked with the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance for a lot of years now doing seed schools, and they're amazing. They, you know, kind of anywhere from a, a one hour to a one day to a, a week long immersion into the world of seeds. And so this is this year we're going to offer one on our farm. It's going to be just a weekend, so it'll be an all day Saturday, all day Sunday thing. And we're, you know, on my farm, I share space. My urban farm shares space with, I guess three other urban farm businesses as well. Uh-huh. So so the co op the seed co op is headquartered there and then there's a couple of other farm businesses that are that are run off that same property, both of whom in addition to growing what they grow for themselves and their markets, also grow seed for the co op. And then my farm is there as well. So it's a great learning environment. It's in the middle of the city, but it feels like it's not. So we're inviting people to come and learn from us on about, you know, all all aspects of seed. So everything from the, the kind of the, the down and, and dirty, how do you do this? You know, how do you, what's a sulfur? What's an outcrosser? How do you process tomato seeds? How do you thresh and winnow radishes? How do you keep squash? How do you hand pollinate squash to keep it from cross-pollinating with itself? So we'll have a lot of hands-on 
in the field activities, as well as looking at these bigger picture issues that we're all talking about, you know, the, the idea of seed sovereignty, the idea of bioregional seed systems, you know, how does it, how does it work? How do people make hybrids? How does genetic modification work in seed? So some of that bigger picture stuff as well. And then just a bunch of social time and mm-hmm. some really good local food. And we're inviting people to camp there over the, over the weekend so that they can immerse themselves if they want to, but it's also in the middle of the city. So there's plenty of, you know, Airbnbs and hotels right. and stuff if camping isn't exactly your deal. But um, we see it as a great opportunity to invite people to our little corner of the of the world and see how we're doing seeds on the ground where we are in a collaborative urban farming kind of way. Beautiful. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, it's an interesting question, I guess. Uh, I don't, I was thinking about it. I don't, failure is hard for me to, I mean, I think I tend to think about failure in terms of the only things I can think of are with relationships, uh, right. <laughs> you know, like where it's like there's two people involved and you, you know, it just couldn't work and it devolves. But in terms of my own, you know, my farming world and life and, and uh, the seed company and stuff, I think, of them more, I think of them more as mistakes, I guess, you know? So, like, I don't know, one of the things I was thinking of one time we moved onto this new farm plot and we had been harvesting, a, like, there was all this chamomile growing there. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. Like, you know, chamomile, how, how crazy. Like, this is so wonderful. So we were harvesting it and giving it to our CSA members. And I was even taking some of it and saving seed off of it, putting it into packets and stuff. And at one point, I think about a year later, I realized that it wasn't chamomile. It was a weed. It was it was a weed. <laughs> I had been marketing it as chamomile, both to my CSA members and to my <laughs> seed customer. Wow. And, <laughs> and so I guess what I learned from that uh, failure or mistake or whatever is to make sure you know damn well what, right, exactly. <laughs> what you have. Exactly. Well, yeah, we have something like that growing here in our neighborhood, and it looks like chamomile. It's the you know that nice little yellow heads at the very top, very prolific, lots and lots of flowers. Smells like chamomile, and it's a weed. So I think I know which one you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I don't even know what it's actually called, but but yeah, it's not chamomile. It turns out. <laughs> so, what do you consider your biggest success? I I definitely see the biggest success at this point. At well, the, the seed co-op is, is inspiring to me because just when I look back at how far we've come with it, you know, that it's becoming financially solvent at this point. It's mm-hmm. serving a large contingent of growers. It's, we're distributing, I don't know, I mean, I think this year probably about 50,000 packets of seed, which, you know, wow. when I look at that and I think about, yeah, when I think about my own my own place, you know, my own little corner of the world. I was born and raised in Boise. And, you know, this is this is 50,000 packets of locally grown seed that didn't exist here right. six years ago. Yeah. And, you know, that to me, that's a really substantial contribution to our region's food security. No kidding. That's making quite a difference. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> what drives you? There's the real answer and then there's the polished answer. So the real, the answer, real answer would be... Yeah. Yeah, the real answer is that I'm an angsty person. I'm like a naturally anxious, angsty type A person who has a lot of issues with the way that that modern society functions. And I must have something like massive amounts of work that doesn't 
ethically that I don't ethically conflict with to do in order yeah. to stay sane. And so for me, it's just a matter of like <laughs> doing, <laughs> having something to get up and do every day. And that makes you and, feel good. You know, that, well, yeah, that at least doesn't make me feel horrible. Right. You know, and, and then I guess that the more polished side of that is that, yeah, you know, trying to find solutions to these massive problems that we see all around us all the time and use our little tiny lives to like, in some way affect positive change. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. I uh, definitely yeah. <laughs> resemble that remark. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I want to recommend three books to your listeners. <laughs> Is that possible? Uh, go. That's always good. Okay. Okay. So one, I mean, if I have to pick one, I'm just focusing on seed books. If I have to pick one, uh, Seed to Seed by Suzanne Ashworth is kind of the Bible of small-scale seed saving. And so I would definitely recommend that book if you just want to start into beginning seed saving career, you know, learn, learn how to do the basics. That book is a really great how to basic how to. Who's the author? Uh, and then uh, Suzanne Ashworth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but then to add some nuance to that and make it just much more exciting to think about seeds. Um, there are two others I want to recommend. One is braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And that one is a, it's a, it's, it invites you to think about, seeds and ecology and the natural world and the intersections between culture and agriculture um, in a really beautiful way. She's a Native woman who um, has been trained also in Western science, and so mm -hmm. she's a really great bridge between those two cosmologies and the two ways of seeing the world. And her, her writing is beautiful and uh, just invites us to kind of expand our minds a little bit into all the different ways we might think about. Mm -hmm. And then the last one would be Thor Hansen's book, um, The Triumph of Seeds. It's just fascinating to think about their history and the ways they move around and the ways that they are so completely embedded into the fabric of, of the lives of so many different creatures. Yeah. Well, you know, the, so, yeah. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on the way seeds move around. Uh, yeah. That's for sure. I, I When I was at uh, ASU, Arizona State University, getting my master's degree in 2004, 5, and 6, uh, one of the people that I worked with uh, was getting her PhD on the topic of roadside weeds and how they travel in car tires. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, and you know, you think about the humans and in, in the way that human beings have moved seeds all over the world, you know, for, for the, basically they've allowed, seeds have allowed us to to not only stay put and develop agricultures, but they've also allowed us to move and take agricultures with us where we go. Yeah. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Mm. My definitely to, to grow some seed, let something that you are interested, like if you have, if you grow carrots in your garden and you have never let a carrot stay in the garden over the winter and then the next spring flower and make it seeds. Um, you should do that yes. because it's so fascinating yes. to watch the way that these things change. And so just saving seed off of one thing. I mean, I, I always, I think with anything with our, with our, as we think about our projects and how we want to move forward in the world and things, I think that, you know, just those small steps, one foot in front of the other are really useful and that it's okay to start small. It's okay to just start with one thing and then do the next thing. And then the next thing, we don't have to know all the answers. And we also don't have to know all the rules right away either. Right. Like, you know, it's good to try to just 
start under the radar and then as you get bigger and you get more established and stuff, the, the rule makers will find you. Uh, right. <laughs> and exactly. then you know, and then you but by that point you have you have enough of a foundation under you that you can deal with those rule makers as they arrive and you can do what you have to do to come into compliance or whatever, you know, as you as you get big enough to, to need to do that. But don't let the rules stop you, I guess, to start. You know, we, we need to be starting. And we can start really small and work into the point where someone notices what we're doing enough to want to enforce the rules on us. Or take notice and want to copy us. That's even better. Yeah, that too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Casey. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? There were several Snake River, Rocky Mountain Seed, and your space. So tell us all three of those. Sure, yeah. So my own farm is called Earthly Delights Farm, and you can find uh, some blogs I write about urban farming and some things like that on, on that website. It's earthlydelightsfarm.com. Our little Snake River Seed co-op is snakeriverseeds.com. You can find a good selection of our seeds there and also a bunch of blog posts and rants and this and that there. And then our kind of what I consider to be our bioregional umbrella organization is Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And theirs is uh, rockymountainseeds.org. And they there you can find maps of seed stores all over the country, of seed libraries all over the country, of seed companies all over the country, and get connected into that kind of grassroots seed saving education. Beautiful. And if you're interested in the seed school that we're offering on our farm this summer, the place you go to for the seed school registration and information is to snakeriverseeds.com. Snakeriverseeds.com. Beautiful. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash snake river seeds. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.